हाई माई नेम इज सुवीति एंड यूर लिस्निंग टू मंथन This is part 2 of the conversation with Harshad. If you've not listened to part 1, please do so. Today I'm talking to Harshad Barde. Harshad is involved with the KKPKP, the Kagad Kach Patra Kashtakari Panchayat, a membership-based trade union of waste pickers. This is an amazing story of how some women came together in the union and broke so many barriers. They went on to be recognized by and partner with the Pune Municipal Corporation for their contribution. Swach is a wholly workers owned cooperative which participates in door to door waste collection instead of dumping. The work done by Swach waste pickers has an astounding impact on the environmental and financial well-being of the city. It is almost equivalent to conserving 1 crore 48 lakhs 85846 gallons of petrol. Amazing, isn't it? come join us so the uh, ordinary pune citizen does he or she segregate the waste when they give it to the waste picker or anybody from swachh so we see uh, we see a variation uh, across the board and sad or sorry to say that uh, it's not really there's no really marker that determines why which person would segregate a waste Um, there's non-segregation in slums. There's non-segregation in the most elite parts of the city as well. Generally, what happens is that because the swatch face picker is coming to your doorstep every single day, and she's either telling you sweetly or frowning at you every day, saying that "yar, ye kya hai? Alag karke do." Over a period of time, people start segregating. It takes time. Sometimes it takes a month. Sometimes it takes six months. But a majority of the citizens in Pune do keep their waste separately, do hand it over separately. Even in slums, where space is a problem. Um, you can bring education i really don't think it's education um but chalk sure, there's low education small spaces lot of people no real space to keep two separate dustbins you may have a higher level of mixing at the source generally though when the waste pickers do collect it um and start this collection service segregation improves markedly over the period of time the next layer of this is that the waste picker doesn't take the waste to the transfer station or to the processing unit the municipality sends a vehicle two separate vehicles one for wet waste one for dry waste two trucks to collect the waste from them and the waste pickers have to ensure at this point that the wet and dry is separate so you may have an unfortunate situation where you start collection and the waste pickers have to segregate it before handing it over to the corporation but because it goes against their interest against their health against their dignity they themselves and that and because they've got some amount of capacity building training they are empowered people who are service providers they train the citizens over a period of time to start segregation so i definitely say uh, swachh covers around 70% of the city um, almost 95% of the citizens who give up waste to us are today segregating waste and if the balance 5% are not the waste pickers are making efforts to make sure that the segregation improves um, and one important thing is that this has happened without too much there has been some but without too much external information education communication campaigns you know outreach campaigns that cities like indore have invested very very heavily in tens of crore every single year we've really not had that level of outreach campaigning in pune but because the waste picker is coming and she wants it separate and you are required to give it separate we've been able to achieve these levels of segregation so how would uh, she want us to segregate our waste just dry and wet or no. yeah so what... more ideally ideally more um you do wet waste which is your kitchen waste um if it's possible please compost it at home uh, it takes nothing little uh, little picnic basket mm-hmm. you add a little bit of compost to it add your veggies every day mix them up maybe some cocoa peat or dry leaves and uh, your wet waste disappears but wet waste uh definitely is the first category the second one would be dry waste the third category would be sanitary waste so the sanitary napkins used sanitary napkins and tampons condoms and diapers should be segregated into a third category wrapped up in a newspaper and ideally marked with a red dot 
it is not marked with a red dot, at least kept separately and handed over separately as a third category to the waste picker. Because once I throw the waste, she's going to go through the dry waste to take out the recyclables and undertake recycling, which is, again, like I said, it is going to come back and help me as a citizen. It's going to save my city money. And while she's doing that, there is no reason why she should have to go through the indignity of touching the feces, maybe of a cute little child, but feces of a child or the blood of a woman, uh, both of which items are today yes, very, very much proliferated everywhere. They're being used in the vastis also. Uh, but there's no reason why the waste picker should have to go through that indignity by trying to earn her livelihood. So definitely sanitary waste as a third category. And in Pune, we are promoting a few other categories slowly by slowly. So thermocol is one of them. Ideally, it should be banned. But until it isn't banned, um, it doesn't get collected very easily. Thermocol, uh, EPS, extended or extruded uh, polystyrene. So we know them as thermocol or styrofoam. Um, they... This material is very high volume and very, very low weight, which makes it excellent packaging material used by the industry. But it's very tough to transport because in a vehicle that can carry one ton, uh, you'd have 50 kilo of thermocol that fits into it. So the waste picker is not too happy transporting it because the vehicle that takes the waste from her does not want to touch it because the vehicle that takes waste from that vehicle does not want to touch it, so on and so forth. It's a logistical problem. But we have determined, uh, we've fixed a system now here in Pune where we're convincing citizens to give thermocol separately, waste pickers to keep it separately, the primary waste collection vehicle that takes the waste from the waste pickers to keep it in a bag uh, separately. And then from the transfer station, it gets picked up by a local thermocol manufacturer in Pune called KK Nard. Um, and they actually take it back and convert the thermocol back into thermocol. Uh, otherwise, what would happen is that all the thermocol, all the large pieces of thermocol would not get, they would leave your house, but the city's collection system does not have the space to manage it. So they end up in the roadside, they end up in uh, the rivers, so on and so forth. And they all break down into small walls and then into microplastics and impact the environment. So these four categories for sure, wet waste, dry waste, sanitary waste, and thermocol to begin with. Ideally, we'd like to move to a system where you have your dry recyclables and dry non-recyclables also separated by citizens. But if you are able to achieve these four at a 100% level, we would be quite happy with it. Okay. And I see a lot of numbers behind a lot of plastic containers. One is sure. PET and second is HDP and so forth. So yeah. should we uh, segregate on that basis? Because that makes to, ah. makes to make sense. One, we can just match the numbers together. So this is quite interesting. Um, you have first the, all the dry waste. You can then break it up into dry recyclable and non-recyclable. What recyclable, is dry non-recyclable, for example? So um, most of the things that you're throwing out today are dry non-recyclable, but I'll tell you what it is, sorry. Um, paper, for example, can be broken up into cardboard or corrugated paper, um, notebooks, magazines, white paper, like, you know, the A4 size white paper that we use, uh, and Tetra Pak, and then something called RS or road scrap or bandha, uh, which is essentially most of the paper packaging that we see. So Amul uh, butter, the cover that comes with that, it's a paper uh, cover, but it also had a very plastic. thin layer of plastic on it, okay. or it might be wax on it. Paper cups, uh, most of the stuff, most of the paper that we throw out is RS. Now paper is recyclable. But the cardboard will get recycled because it has high value, high density, low volume. So it's easy to transport and it has a high material value because you can convert cardboard back into cardboard. Uh, white uh, A4 size paper can also be recycled. So can newspapers. Um, so can Tetra Pak, I suppose. So can the RS. But Tetra Pak and RS have a very low value. They're already degraded quality of paper. Uh, RS makes up 50% of the paper waste that we throw out and it does not get recycled easily because it has very low value, it's contaminated with food, it's contaminated with oil and other material, it has thin layers of plastic that are sticking to it, uh, so you can't just easily pulp it and convert it back into paper. Um, this material actually ends up in the non-recyclable bin. There are technologies that can handle it, but as of now, most of the industry is not able to handle it. If you look at plastic, you would have your PET bottles, um, uh, your you know bisleri coke whatever kind of uh, beverage bottles you would have hdpe which would be shampoo bottles or similar large size containers you'd have polypropylene which is perhaps say the food takeout containers uh, you'd have polystyrene which is uh, cd covers cassette covers hard plastic that breaks um, you would have pvc 
which is really not really found in household waste, except for the labels of the bread bottles. And if we have some kind of piping uh, uh, in our houses, like uh, sewage piping or something like that, made out of plastic water pipes. Um, and then you have the MLP, uh, which or number seven, which is essentially, uh, you also have LDPE, uh, low density polyethylene, which is your bags, paper bags, uh, plastic bags that you use. And then you have the seventh category, which doesn't really get recycled. Again, if you look at the breakup between these, 50% of the plastic can be relatively easily recycled, 40 to 50%, 50 to 60% can't be easily recycled. It's very tough to do it. It's technically possible, but it's too expensive to transport it as against the value derived from the sale of the recyclable. So it does not happen. It ends up in the landfill or in the processing unit getting burned at some point of time. When you look at this fact that recyclables is not, is not one term, Within paper, you have five grades. Within plastic, you have maybe 10 grades. Within each category, you have so much. You segregating it at home into seven categories uh, may not really help too much because uh, you need, say, a scrap shop, a small size. A waste picker would get around 20 kilos of uh, plastic every day. Uh, a scrap shop would get around a ton, uh, maybe 500 kilos to a ton per day. The aggregator is dealing in five tons per day. When I do it at my place into seven categories, my waste collection system is not, is not uh, you know, it's, it's not designed to handle seven different categories of plastic. It's going to mix it up again. And as you go ahead on the chain, the same thing happens. The best that you can do and perhaps should do is to keep your plastics nice and clean, wipe them with paper if they have oil or other food adulteration, and keep the plastic separate. But if you're giving your waste to an MCD vehicle, for example, and that vehicle is just going to put it back into the system, it's not really going to have any impact. Uh, so it's, yes, it seems nice. We can see it abroad in many places that they have these seven containers and you go and put the plastic over there. But abroad, you don't have an economy that survives on waste. You don't have waste pickers. You don't have uh, scrap shops. You know, you don't have poor people who are living on this kind of waste. The best that we can do is to give our waste out in such a way that it actually supplies and goes into the informal recycling sector. Um, it, if you're able to do paper, plastic, metal, glass, you as your household is excellent. But unless the 500 other people living in your area are also doing it, uh, it's a bit of a waste. And if you look at our cities, um, very few people would have the space to keep seven, eight different types of bins in their houses. Most societies would not be willing to do it either. If they are, that is excellent. They can train their housekeeping staff, their waste pickers to handle it separately, keep it separately. But then you have to make sure that the link is there with the scrap shops after that, or with the local waste picker, and you hand it over to them so that they can continue to reach out to them. So the waste picker in from Swatch, she has this extensive knowledge of most of these materials and she yes. sorts through these materials accordingly. Okay. Yes, yes. So she take our waste and First, she probably just remove everything that she can sell and then take it to a sorting shed uh, or to a scrap shop. And then she'll do, at least on a regular basis, two or three types of paper, four or five types of plastic, two or three types of glass, um, every type of metal that's possible, uh, and some cloth as well. So she'd break it up into at least 15 categories before selling it ahead. In some places, the amount of waste is so less that it doesn't make sense for her to do so many categories. She might just do all the flexible plastic and the hard plastics as just two categories and not six categories. So it really depends on the, the area in which she's collecting the waste, what her scrap shop is accepting, what is the size of that scrap shop, so on and so forth. In an ideal world, yes, she could do up to 20 categories every day and sell it. But if again, the scrap shop is only going to take two categories, she'll make those two categories. But irrespective of what number of categories she does, as long as she's ensuring that it gets it's clean, it's sorted, and it's ending up with a scrap shop, the scrap shop, the aggregator, the transporter, the pre-processor, the recycler, along that chain, that waste will be sorted further, 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 until you have blue-colored parachute HDPE bottles separate from the translucent PP white food containers separate, because only then can it actually get recycled. Each of the plastic types have a different melting point. Uh, each one of them have different colors and additives that are added. So you want all the blue HDP bottles separate so that you can melt them at the same temperature. There's no burning that happens. There's no unmelted material. And the output that you get is high-grade recycled material that can, again, go back into being made into HDP bottles. But if you have um, 
if you mix, say, black colored bottles with the blue colored bottles, your output will be bad. You'll get a poor grade color, and then you can't really sell it ahead. So it does get separated first by material, by polymer, first by material, then by polymer, then by color, and sometimes even density. Uh, and then it gets recycled. And along this chain are many, many, many actors from our house to the recycler who are ensuring that this finer and finer sorting takes place. I call that a skill job. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely a skill job. Absolutely. I, I, so today, like I was saying earlier, today morning, I went for a waste characterization study and I have all the degrees in the world and I worked in this sector for 10 years and I was looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, is this polystyrene or is this polypropylene? I just can't tell. I'm touching it, bending it, trying to break it, but I just can't tell. It's too complex for me to figure it out. The waste picker comes and says, ha ha bhao, ye isko idhar dalo, isko idhar dalo. Aap tension lo, mereko malum hai. And then I ask the researchers and they're like, yeah, yeah, she's right. You please stand aside and just look. <laughs> so, but uh, these companies, they yeah. have these EPR responsibilities. So, aren't they hmm. supposed to do that? Well, so extended producer responsibility is the mandate of a company that is putting material, plastic material out there into the consumer world to ensure that the material gets recycled or processed or managed uh, till the end of its life. Um, it's a tricky affair. The legislation is, the draft legislation is just out. It's, it might get notified sometime soon, but essentially it puts the responsibility of managing plastic waste on either the plastic manufacturers or the brand owners that are using the plastic. So yes, uh, on paper, it is their responsibility to ensure that this, the amount of waste that they are putting into the market, the amount of packaging, for example, uh, and FMCG is putting out into the market should go back into recycling. But these are manufacturers. They know how to make soda or biscuits or chips. They know logistics. Um, they know what packaging material to use. They don't know how to recycle. They don't know how to collect materials. Uh, you know, the entire supply chain is now decentralized and outsourced. So Coke is not really delivering its bottle to your local shop. There's many people along the chain that actually handle the logistics. And waste collection is all about logistics. So Coca-Cola is not an expert in that. Uh, recycling is again a whole other sector for them, uh, which is why EPR is going to be dependent on cities doing things better and organizations like ours, uh, organizations of waste pickers and other waste management organizations actually doing the collection and management of this material. What's ended up happening is that while, the, while there is a mandate, the targets are not necessarily, as of now, very clear. The method of actually collecting and managing this is not clear. And most importantly, the traceability of the system is not clear. So I, as a manufacturer, may be required to process uh, or handle 10,000 tons of plastic, uh, multi that plastic every year. I can't do it. So I hire a recycler and I tell them, hey, you know, you do this recycling, you give me a certificate that you've done it. Now, this recycler, if he's extremely genuine, is going to find a way to source this material from someone else and someone else and someone else till you come down to the waste collection agency or the municipal corporation. But if I'm not a very scrupulous person, uh, I'm going to bring in 2000 tons of uh, multi-layered plastic, show that it has come in, uh, show that it has come in again five mm -hmm. times and then give a certificate for 10,000. How do I trace what's actually going, what's being generated and what's being recycled? It's very, very tricky. Like I said, again, there's no barcoding, there's no inventory system. Uh, and a lot of this material is handled by the informal sector. So it becomes very difficult to actually trace it, which is why EPR has not really taken off as much. Although there are very good examples of um, certain types of EPR working out quite well. Um, we, for example, in Pune have tied up with ITC. Uh, which makes different kinds of uh, fast food goods and uh, you know, uh, packaged food items. Uh, in our partnership with them, we are actually collecting their and only their multi-layered plastic, the lowest value, most difficult to recycle material. We're not touching any of the higher value plastics. Uh, we are collecting these directly from the waste because no middlemen, and we are paying the waste because uh, uh, an unsustainable price of four rupees per kilo. Uh, because the market would take it at one, if at all. Uh, and then we are transporting it, we are bailing it, we're sorting it, we're removing all the contaminants, and then we're sending it for recycling. Um, it either gets made into plastic crates or it gets made into polyal boards or some other form of recycling. Uh, the alternative would be that it would end up in the landfill or it would get shredded and burnt, like I mentioned earlier. 
And this entire system is supported by ITC. We have traceability for you know, 19th of December, Sunday, at this point, this waste picker sold this much, all the way up to the final recycler, who then verifies the amount that we have actually given to them. If you have such a decentralized, in-depth monitored system, then you can definitely have EPR that works, but it is expensive. It's much cheaper to just kind of give someone money to say, give me a certificate. Uh, it's much cheaper to just have these massive units that are already getting in mixed waste to just generate a certificate saying they've processed a particular waste. And so that traceability is not there in the EPR legislation right now. Uh, if they're able to build it properly, then we would have a better and better EPR that's executed across the country. The last element of EPR that I'd like to talk about is also about what material is actually being recycled. Um, love it, hate it, don't agree with it, agree with it. Recycling exists uh, and it is being taken care of by an extremely agile um, and low cost efficient informal sector today. When companies are required to handle the material that the recycling sector is already handling, they actually have to undertake uh, a campaign of removing the people who are already handling it. I'm not saying they go and remove people physically, but they have to try and capture that material through introducing capital, through introducing contracts with municipal corporations and taking away the material that's already being recycled into their system so that they can show that they're doing EPR. And that's a major problem. So beverage companies, PET is, plastic is terrible. Uh, PET is one of the least terrible ones right now, perhaps, because it has a higher recycling value. But most of it, if not all, most of it gets collected. Most of one day or the other gets collected, gets recycled. Uh, but multi-layered packaging, thin, flexible food packaging is far more in quantum than PET, but it does not get collected. It does not get recycled. But when we look at plastic in the media, we get to see plastic bottles because you can see them very easily. Whereas most of the waste that's not getting recycled today is the lower value packaging that you do. Irrespective of what one feels about recycling and whether how better, worse, bad it should be, the EPR legislation should ensure that the material that has no value, the material that is ending up in co-processing, ending up in burning, ending up in landfills, is the first one that is collected by the companies, that they put their money in taking care of this material because it's the most expensive to handle. That would inspire them, hopefully, to generate less and less of this material and switch to materials that are easy to recycle, easy to reuse or generate less waste. That's the ultimate goal of EPR and not just to fund the collection of it. But until we design our laws in that way, uh, it's going to be quite difficult. Is there a willingness on uh, the part of these companies to actually change? I can't speak for the companies. Uh, I don't know. I think uh, things are run based on the bottom line, usually, the financial bottom line, usually, which means that it's easier to produce and it's easier to uh, use the cheapest material, the most durable material, uh, the one that gives you the maximum shelf life uh, to produce your goods, or what is the most attractive for customers to buy uh, in variation of sizes though, so that people across income categories can buy their products. So, you know, a one rupee shampoo sachet 30 years ago was like unheard of, but today it's everywhere. Um, I think it's the bottom line that drives them to do this. Um, whether they are environmentally conscious or not, it is the bottom line that drives them. So I, I don't know whether they're inspired to do it or not. There is a lot of social awareness, uh, global awareness that's come into this sector, which is why we have these laws uh, that are coming in, even in India, uh, we've got plastic bans that are coming in. It's very slow. It needs to be much better. Um, and whether companies agree with it or not, they have to live with it. So I don't think it really matters what they think. Uh, what's more important is what we make them think and what we make them do as a society, as a country, by changing our laws, by forcing them to change. I'll give you an example that the, we don't have EPR, a clear EPR law in India. We have regulations. They're there, uh, but they're so vague that anyone can challenge them in court. Yet over the last four years that they have existed, most of the major companies have started some kind of EPR or the other because they don't want to fall foul of even a vague law. You know, they're inspired, you can say, uh, to make sure that their compliances are met, uh, even if they know that Chalo court but they will still make sure that they don't want to, you know, Britannia does wants to make biscuits. They don't want to go to court to fight the country. Um, so having changes in these laws, 
monitor them, but they need to be designed to ensure that the existing system does not crash. Um, if Bisleri is going to spend all of its money collecting back Bisleri bottles, um, Bisleri bottles would disappear from the existing informal system. If Bisleri bottles disappear, um, you have to take away their entire high value from the informal economy, which means that the informal economy is now left with very low value material and it may not have the capacity to actually manage that. And so taking out one high recyclable item out of the equation can actually destroy the current recycling of all the other types of material. So they, EPR laws have to be designed keeping this in mind, taking the informal sector along, because like I said, they're doing most of the recycling in the country. If you remove them from the equation, well, we're going to end up with a lot more waste ending up in our landfills, getting burned uh, either directly openly in landfills or after shredding in cement plants but getting burned for sure. There's so much nuance here, so much. I don't think the ordinary citizen realizes this at all. So uh, there is there a landfill near Pune where the waste of yes. Pune, which is non-recycled ends up in? Okay. And yeah, there are many actually. <laughs> There's one principal landfill at uh, Purari Devachi. Pipri uh, Chinchwara sister city has one principal. There. Um, there are some old legacy landfills that have now been covered but yes, we do have multiple landfills. Um, Pune City claims that uh, we have sufficient processing capacity um, to actually handle the waste either before or after it reaches the landfill. So even if the dry non-recyclable waste goes into the landfill, it is then towed by trucks and put onto a conveyor belt, then that then tries to remove the organics. It removes the metals by magnetism, uh, the ferrous metals by magnetism, the non-ferrous ones by electromagnetism. And then they have people standing on a conveyor belt that take out different types of plastic, paper, whatever can be recycled. And then the balance is shredded into dust of some sort, which is packaged and sent to cement plants for burning, uh, along with their traditional sources of uh, fuel uh, in the cement kilns at a very high temperature. Um, I'm saying they claim because I don't know for a fact, uh, because I have not seen it. But generally, yes, a lot of it is getting processed in a city like Pune because the dry waste that comes into these plants is fairly well sorted. Uh, it doesn't have too much organic. If it had a lot of organic waste, uh, those plants would shut down at some point of time in the near future. And in the past, even currently across the city, across the country, we can see that plants are shutting down. You know, we have these waste to energy plants that are coming up everywhere. Um, it's, I am completely against them. Um, firstly, because um, it incentivizes that more and more waste goes into that place. Uh, these are plants that require anywhere between 200 to 1000 crores to set up and they cannot be shut down once they have set up too much money has gone into them. Uh, they want higher calorific value material and generally the value material is also the highest recyclable material. So all the hard plastics, all the good quality paper. So these plants want this kind of material. And instead of it going into recycling, which is definitely two steps above energy recovery uh, in the waste hierarchy, you end up with the system wanting to crush everything, bring it to one place and burn it. Um, and we simply don't have the kind of testing capacity uh, necessary to make sure that these plants are not uh, puffing out noxious fumes uh, and the big plants that we do have are doing exactly that it's been shown over and over again through ngt uh, directions and through different agencies working on the environment that incineration plants waste energy plants are puffing out highly toxin material that is affecting not only the health of those around but the environment of everybody around because the stuff that comes out of this just imagine everything that is in your house that you're throwing away, the batteries, the diapers, the masks, the wires, everything, and just setting it on fire in your house. And how would that feel? You know, we don't know what chemicals go into anything uh, at all. I mean, I still don't know what goes into sanitary napkins and diapers, even though I've been trying to figure it out for the longest time. So you absolutely don't know what happens when you burn it. And it doesn't matter what you claim in terms of the temperature and the quality and all of that. If that were true, um, the Western countries who have created this technology would not be kicking this technology out. We see more and more that Europe and America are pushing these technologies out of their system because they've recognized that they're environmentally disastrous for them. And you have a few shining examples of a nice looking plant in Sweden, sure. Uh, but Sweden is a very different country. You know, their realities are very different. The kind of waste they consume is very different. What they do with the energy generated is very different. They don't convert it to electricity. 
a majority of the time during the cold months, they use the heat directly for district heating of their area. So there's no conversion loss. So it's perhaps financially viable for them. India may district heating We don't need that at all. So uh, these are very, very uh, nuanced issues, but definitely once you set up, once you invest 1000 crores in a plant that's going to burn your waste, why would you do anything else? Why would you try and reduce the amount of waste? Why would you try and reuse or recycle, uh, divert to other things? You absolutely won't. You'll just try and feed the monster continuously. Yeah. There's so much difference between the Indian scene and the international scene. And as you said that there is uh, not a there is there isn't a society abroad which informal society which lives and feeds on this kind of waste system. You know, like informal waste people are in India. So why is that so? And uh, is it been, what is preferable? Are they doing something bad or are we doing something bad or are just our societies different in that context? I mean, see, there are waste pickers everywhere. There are waste pickers in New York. There are waste pickers in Hong Kong, uh, in London, maybe not Singapore, they're too strict, but uh, it's just a joke. I don't know. But there are waste pickers everywhere. Um, it's just the, just like everything else, it's the number of them that are there. It's the level of poverty, uh, in our society, it's the lack of education in our country, it's the lack of uh, other jobs, viable jobs in our country, and there are the barriers that are created by gender, by caste, that keep uh, workers uh, linked to a particular kind of occupation for uh, generation after generation. Uh, but in a nutshell, it would come down to poverty, population, caste. Um, these three things are what is very, very different in our countries as against the global north. Um, which is why they have far fewer number of waste because as against us. I don't think one is doing better versus the other in terms of the this sector of waste because informal waste because we actually today have much more progressive legislation, if not converted into practical reality, but much more progressive legislations dealing with waste because than most of the global north countries. Um, waste pickers in Hong Kong are not allowed to be, are not unionized. They don't really have any recognition or rights. Whereas in a city like Pune, they, the corporation has actually codified the fact that waste pickers have the right over recyclables. So things can be very starkly different. One thing though that I'll definitely say is that we have a far higher rate of recycling in India than say most of the global north mega cities like London, uh, whatever, New York, uh, San Francisco, maybe not San Francisco, but uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, none of these cities can have, <laughs> they're not even competing with us when it comes to recycling our waste um, because their systems are very different because they do not have people who are willing to work with waste or are forced to work with waste or are just simply working in waste were able to sort it, were able to send it into recycling. They simply don't. They have those massive uh, processing units. They have massive landfills. They have uh, money interests aligned in such a way that it's better to collect it and dump it or collect it and process it as against promoting recycling or reuse or reduction. I definitely think in the recycling sector, we are doing much better. In terms of reuse, um, our culture till the very recent past was mostly that of reuse. I remember my mother not throwing away plastic bags ever, even today perhaps. Uh, using cloth bags, using containers to go to your local mill and getting your wheat and your rice, uh, you know, uh, converted into flour at the local mill and bringing it back in steel containers and storing it in those steel containers for the entire year. Uh, or doing things, uh, storing things in gunny bags, which can be reused over and over again and can get composted at some point of time. Till very recent, we had this culture. But the single-use, disposable, fast-moving economy, the, the idea that buying small things is actually uh, progressive, um, the, just the, prolifer the, just the proliferance of, uh, proliferation of consumerism in our society where we want choice and variety and a different type of biscuit and song and cigarette every day. All of these things have led to uh, what was principally a Western phenomena or a global North phenomena of, of packaged goods, uh, of single use, of dispose. But we still, we still haven't tied ourselves down into a particular system. We still have the option of not doing waste to energy and focusing on legislation that introduces reduction of waste at source, reduction of packaging at source, 
which perhaps says that you know what from tomorrow every single beverage bottle uh, whether it's coke sprite whatever it doesn't matter what it is it will come in a single color it will be made of a single type of plastic um, and it will all have the same type of recyclability if you do that every single plastic bottle can go together and it gets recycled otherwise today the bisleri is separate from the coke is separate from the sprite uh, so on and so forth if we can legislate having mono material polymer packaging uh, at least let it exists you know wo chai ko package karne ke liye ya to package chips you don't have that kind of material today but for beverages we definitely do for food containers we definitely do why can't every single zomato swiggy restaurant in the city have the same type of food container you would at least promote recycling to a great extent and the next step to that would be to introduce legislation that says that no you have to take back your containers as a restaurant you have 1000 containers you use them you give them out you have to get the same kind of containers back wash them and reuse them again all the delivery services could be mandated on taking back containers from a place that they deliver it to so on and so forth there is there is it definitely if enough time is put into it we can have systems for better delivery of materials of food of reducing the amount of waste that's generated through it uh, some of which is much more tougher in the west as against us where they succeed uh, and today we've started caring about it a lot is visual cleanliness the street looks beautiful in hong kong but the waste that was there before was picked up by someone or if somebody did throw the waste they were slapped with a huge fine uh, that they would never do it again but all of it was picked up taken to a place crushed and burnt and now the toxic ashes wait for another century to leach into our oceans we can go down that path and just make sure apna rasta acha dikhta hai without looking at the sustainability of it without looking at generating employment out of it without looking at the finances behind doing it we could do that and that is a mistake that we would make or we could try and build on our strengths bring back the culture of reuse start composting our waste at home 70% of household waste is just wet waste compost it at home you've taken care of uh, segregation you don't have to segregate anymore because only dry waste is leaving your house you get great quality compost that you can use for your plants or in your community uh, start segregating into more options like you said just at least to have like recyclables and non recyclables uh, start providing space for waste in your locality so we see it all the time where nobody wants waste in their area at all they want to be to be taken far away like they do it in new york but actually if you set up small sorting centers all across the city the local waste pickers could sort it right there and they could send it for recycling light there using their labor you'd have a very low carbon footprint because you're not using motorized transport you'd have very high level of segregation and you'd be able to send all the difficult to recycle materials also for recycling in the short term while you also try to perhaps reduce them and ban them but these things need to be done through legislation through administrative clarity and through political will some of which is always there but all of it is hardly ever there in the same place yeah so is there uh, any willingness on the part of zomato swiggy and say other such food aggregators to do it why don't they do i don't it? i don't know uh, well i don't know uh, i'm sure they they're thinking about it uh, i mean i would like to presume that they are thinking about it um, because they are the only ones in a position today to be able to do it a restaurant an individual restaurant can't do it an individual society Uh, citizen even the government can't do it it's these aggregators uh, who will be able to do it but like i said before it's the bottom line that they are looking at um we have to design laws that make it very tough for them not to do the right thing we have to make it so that they cannot justify the costs of doing the wrong things anymore and i'm not saying swiggy and zomato are doing the wrong things you know it's the consumer who's buying it who's doing the wrong thing it's the producer of plastic everyone you know everybody's bad here it's not one person but they're in a position of power of being able to make an impact and i hope that more and more of these large companies will think about it seriously and do it and if they don't i hope the government will start introducing legislation uh, and ideas that will force them to do it because it will be cheaper for them it will be better for them Yeah, Zomato now also has a chief sustainability officer. They just appointed one. So, I think every all all the major companies have it. They want to do. I'm I'm sure it's everyone can see the mess that the world is in. And as an optimist, I'd like to believe that everyone wants to resolve the problem. But as a pragmatist, 
I know that day to day is being able to pay your employees, being able to, you know, convince your shareholders that you're doing well and your investors that you're doing well. That is far more important than environmental sustainability that will affect your grandchildren. And so on a day to day basis, actions are few and far in between. They're immediate, they're um, superficial. And um, there are companies that are trying to, like I said, make mono material uh, completely recyclable packaging. Uh, if they achieve it, it would benefit everybody to some extent. Is there but, an example of that kind of packaging? So like I said, the only, the only thing I can think of is PET bottles. If you if you had a PET bottle that did not have the label, like mm. no label printed on it at all, no printing, no color printing at all, uh, but the name and the details embossed on it. So you just emboss it so you can see whatever is the name of the company just into inside or outside uh, coming out of the plastic bottle. That would be a uh, mono material. It would only be polyethylene terephthalate uh, packaging. And the problem is the cap is not, <laughs> the cap is another material. So you'd have to figure something out for them. But that's the one kind of example that is there. Hmm. Will there ever be a time where uh, the job of waste picker can be a job which one desires to be, you know? Yeah, it is not possible in a system like ours. Well, I don't, I mean, I would say obviously no. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to, probably in today's economy, probably, I'm not a social scientist, but probably nobody wants to grow up doing manual labor. Nothing else. Just nobody wants to grow up and do manual labor. Nobody wants to be a street sweeper. And there are many, nobody wants to be a domestic worker, a street vendor, you know, anyone, anywhere, everyone wants to be a software engineer somewhere where uh, a lawyer, a doctor, a profession that has much more uh, recognition, less physical work, more intellectual work, more power, more money, so on and so forth. So in that context, I don't think that's ever possible. But can we imagine a world in which uh, uh, the work of a waste picker is no longer indignified? Uh, it's no longer looked down upon as an occupation. Uh, it's something that you can be proud of, even though you might be there by necessity and not by choice, but you're able to do it safely. You're able to earn a living wage. You're able to educate your children so that they do not have to do this work anymore. You have recognition from the government. You have access to social welfare and social security, pensions when you get old, rations when you need food. Is that something that we can imagine? Absolutely. Uh, and that's the attempt that we've tried to do in Pune by taking the waste pickers. Uh, I mean, that's the attempt that the waste pickers have made in Pune by taking themselves from the streets into people's doorsteps. Because 20 years ago, that Dalit woman who nobody would want to even look at or acknowledge the existence of is today coming to your house, drinking tea with you every now and then, breaking through social barriers uh, and caste barriers. And, you know, uh, she's she knows your children by name and she interacts with them on a regular basis. You invite her home every now and then. And this barrier breaking has not happened before at this scale where thousands of these women are servicing people directly, interacting with them directly. Whereas 20 years ago, they wouldn't even speak to anyone other than their very small community. But today they're going into the bungalow society, into the massive tower, but also into the slums. And that kind of change has happened. They have a uniform, they have access to uh, personal protective equipment, a steady income, they have uh, stability and they have security of work because they're not paid salaried contract labor workers, they can't really be removed unless they work badly. They can continue doing their work. They have that security. They have access to education scholarships for their children, some amount of insurance, some amount of uh, access scholarships, some amount of uh, pension access, so on and so forth. They're able to fight the powers if they try to come down on them. They're able to mobilize um, and they're able to celebrate uh, and educate their children. That is real dignity. They may still end up working in waste, uh, but it, it's done in a much more dignified manner. They can say to a citizen, I am not going to handle your sanitary waste. You better pack it separately and give it to me. And then they can say to the corporation, I'm getting the citizen to give this separately. You better find a way to recycle this material. Uh, that's the kind of way in which we should be trying to look at changing the occupation and not necessarily the people, but empowering them to reach a place where they can choose to do something else. The usual process is... But the way that the, the, a very common, I would say, middle class perspective is that you see a waste picker and you're like, why are you doing this? Don't you want to do anything better? Or uh, that this is a disgusting occupation to have. Let's, you know, let's remove these guys. Let's train them to 
sew clothes or you know work in a laundromat or do something else let's take them out of this occupation what people fail to realize is that they're not there by choice that this is the economy the inequality the abject poverty uh, that makes them puts them into that situation and even if you did train them and do you know get them to do something else you just have a layer of more marginalized more uh, ostracized poorer communities that will take up that occupation and continue doing it so you really have to try and say that we will create the occupation we will convert it in such a way that is dignified and safe for them or anyone else who wants to do it and even if people may not want to do it in the future if they have to do it uh, it will be a safe and secure livelihood for them yeah the irony with the recycling industry is that it is embedded in a way with the plastic industry so if you want to reduce plastic then you know that's an entrenched it's in an entrenched position mm. Mm. so uh, trying to reduce one or the other how do we go about doing that sure um yeah and it, it is contradictory and ironic um and it's not only plastics you know um i am not a defender of the plastic industry uh but there's also paper uh and there's also cloth and there's also a lot of mixed materials that we throw out of our house and we need to think about the entire spectrum and not just the narrative of one type of material even though perhaps it is the worst uh there's also the absorbent hygiene products that we use the napkins and the diapers which are mostly plastic we need to think about the entire spectrum of things and then decide where what is the path that we want to chart uh forget about the plastic industries narrative that uh, oh all plastic is recyclable it's a beautiful gorgeous material yes it's useful yes it has made a lot of technological uh, change possible it's eased our lives a lot but it is also poised to destroy our lives in the near future so we have to take what the plastic industry says with a grain of salt if you look at the recycling industry they will probably say the same thing it is their source of income uh if you talk to commonly talk to waste pickers or anyone within the sector informal sector they would also probably say the same thing plastic is good we want more plastic yes uh but they are only trying to earn their income all of them the difference is that the waste picker does not have a choice to do anything else whereas the plastic producers and the recyclers could potentially use their capital to do something else having said that we have to find a middle path where anything that is not getting recycled today practically not getting recycled today either has to be phased out or it has to be replaced with a material that can be recycled anything that is getting recycled today needs to move up the chain towards reuse so instead of having pepsi bottles what is the harm in going back to fountain pepsis you know we used to have them all over the place a few decades ago you go there with your own glass you fill it and you take it um moving towards reuse more and more uh and moving one step further towards reducing the production of this material altogether stopping the production of problem plastics right at the source we have to think about the entire band i think everybody has some responsibility to play if we take any one of the two extremes that let's just produce as much plastic as we want or let's just stop all the plastic when are going to we are not going to find consensus we are not going to find solutions we have to look at what the situation is today multilayered metallized packaging if it is not getting recycled have a plan to phase it out and replace it with other material the material that is getting recycled today and at a good quality recycling where it can be done over and over and over again let's try and strengthen those units today so that they don't have to let's give them tax incentives let's give them uh, land incentives let's put in at the same time more stringent monitoring systems for them um, so that they're able to do recycling better let's look at the material that is extremely problematic at source or whose utility is really not there like straws let's just stop producing all of that material and in that way whenever one the item falls into one of these categories you try and deal with it in the same way so anything that falls into uh, not getting recycled or very difficult to recycle phase it out anything that is getting easily properly recycled strengthen its recycling but don't increase its production so if you have a lot of hdb being recycled nicely you don't need to produce as much more uh, hdp uh, that's not true <laughs> you do it five times after that any material will lose its uh, downcycling yeah it will keep getting downcycled but you at least get time to reduce the production of that material and to find alternatives for it 
if you take just one of the extreme steps, you're not going to move forward at all. We need to take a look at that. Uh, while it is ironic, there is a clear, easy nuance there. Stop what can't be recycled, recycle better or whatever can, reuse as much as possible, reduce production in a phased manner and find alternatives over a period of time through a combination of legislation, tax, um, and just mandate of different sorts. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. So I won't keep you any longer. Okay. That is it. Thank you so much for being here. And I learned so much from this conversation. I can't tell you. This information is really not available, I think, in popular media. Uh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I only subscribe to this information, so I find it there. <laughs> but you're right. It's, not, it's perhaps not sufficiently in the popular conscious as it needs to be. Uh, as aren't the base pickers, as is not the entire sector. And we really need to, before we make, before we make changes that cannot be taken back, we need to take this sector along. Because if it crumbles uh, because of some rash decisions that the government or the companies do now, our recycling of cloth and recycling of paper and recycling of all the other materials will also come to an end. We need to recognize their contribution, give them incentives, help them formalize better, uh, strengthen their livelihoods, give them better working conditions. Because every rupee you put in there is going to get you hundreds of rupees worth of environmental, social, and financial benefits. And this really needs to be done, unfortunately, by the government, because private industry not, does not necessarily have the stake uh, in our larger environmental betterment or the fiscal benefits that the citizens would derive from integrating the informal sector. Okay, thank you so much, Suriji. Uh, it was a thank pleasure. that was so insightful. If you want to take one thing away from this episode, it must be to interact with the waste worker or radhiwala who comes to your neighborhood. Ask him or her how they would like you to give the waste to them. Did you learn something new from today's episode? Please tell us on our social media. It is linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening. See you in the next episode.